the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up his office for the sake of the cause. Today we're going to talk with David Riffle. He's the author of Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside young men 18 to 30. He is an architect and he is a mentor. We'll talk with him about how other men can do the same. That's coming up later this hour. Well, the FBI said on Thursday that it uncovered a plot that was carried out by an armed militia in Michigan to kidnap Democratic Governor Gretchen Whitmer. In total, Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel filed 19 state felony charges against seven individuals known to be members of a militia group, Wolverine Watchmen, or associates of Wolverine Watchmen. Separately, six individuals were also charged, Attorney Andrew Burge, uh, with federal felony charges as a result of the execution of search warrants on Wednesday. This was a serious effort to kidnap the governor. Well, the suspects now under arrest are alleged to have called on the group's members to identify the home addresses of law enforcement officers in order to target them. They made threats of violence to instigate a civil war leading to societal collapse and engaged in the planning and training for an operation to attack the state capitol building and kidnap the governor, uh, government officials, including Governor Whitmer. There's been a disturbing increase in anti-government rhetoric and the reemergence of groups that embrace extremist ideologies, uh, the attorney said. These groups often seek to recruit new members by seizing on a moment of civil unrest and using it to advance their agenda of self-reliance and armed resistance. This is more than just political disagreement or passionate advocacy. Some of these groups' missions is simply to create chaos and inflict harm upon others. Now, it's interesting to me that they make a distinction between this particular group and this effort and those who have been engaged in rioting throughout the country for months. But a distinction is clearly made. Through the efforts of more than 200 state and federal law enforcement officials, officers executed a series of search warrants, arrest warrants in more than a dozen cities around the state, including Belleville, Cadillac, Canton, Charlotte, Clarkston, Grand Rapids, Luther, Munich, Orion uh, Township, Ovid, and others, according to the press release. Um, they also named several individuals who uh, we're facing federal charges for allegedly attempting to kidnap the governor and uh, conspiring to kidnap other government officials as well. Meanwhile, President Trump's sudden pronouncement that U.S. troops in Afghanistan should be home by Christmas will make the already sensitive negotiations with the Taliban more difficult, according to U.S. officials. Well, in the deal the Trump administration signed with the Taliban in February, all U.S. troops will leave Afghanistan by May of 2021 if conditions are met. Well, the conditions include that there will be no attacks against U.S. forces. We should have the small remaining number of our brave men and women serving in Afghanistan home by Christmas, the president tweeted late Wednesday. The Taliban said in a statement on Thursday that they welcomed the president's announcement. However, the president appeared to have gotten ahead of his negotiators and his national security team. It's not the first time. The president's tweet came hours after his national security advisor, Robert O'Brien, said the U.S. would reduce its force to 2,500 by early next year. 
Well, U.S. officials say that the uh, sudden pronouncement, which appeared time to help Trump in his presidential election, will make it harder for his negotiators and the Afghan government, who are currently in tough talks with the Taliban in Doha, Gutter. Several officials close to the negotiations, they said the declaration may have even jeopardized the delicate talks. Counterterrorism officials said that this may lead to a victory for the Taliban and the collapse of the Afghan government and a major shot of adrenaline to the global jihadist movement. Now, the president, you might recall, under the previous administration was very critical of the Obama uh, administration making pronouncements about what they were going to do and early on in his administration saying we will never do that. We don't want to show our hand ahead of uh, or in the midst of these negotiations. And that is precisely what the president has done this time around, sowing discord into very sensitive talks that are ongoing. Well, Democratic presidential nominee Kamala Harris and Vice President Mike Pence didn't waste time trading fire over President Trump's handling of the coronavirus pandemic, the idea of packing the Supreme Court and taxes as they faced off Wednesday night in their first and only debate before the November 3rd election. November 3rd, simply days away. While the two nominees were significantly more cordial to one another in Utah than Trump and Democratic nominee Joe Biden were in their first presidential debate last week in Cleveland, though they clashed several times throughout the night when Pence spoke over Harris. Mr. Vice President, I'm speaking, I'm speaking, Harris said at one point during a discussion on taxes. Pence then shot back. It'd be important if you had Uh, If you said the truth during a spirited opening, Harris and Pence sparred over how the Trump administration has performed during the pandemic. The debate, which is the first since the president contracted COVID-19, came with the president temporarily sidelined from the campaign, rather huddling in the White House after being hospitalized for three days at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center as he recovers. Well, the president was reportedly considering an appearance in Pittsburgh next week. Harris and Pence sat at desks on the stage, separated not only by 12 feet of space, but also by plexiglass partitions to try to minimize any potential airborne transmission of the virus. Pence and his team initially objected to the barriers, but relented hours before the debate. In other developments, Frank Luntz points out that undecided voters found Kamala Harris abrasive and condescending in the vice presidential debate. How that translates into support or non-support remains to be seen. And the World Health Organization won the debate. The Pence-Harris showdown draws a range of opinions online. Well, AOC to the vice president says it's Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez to you. Well, the U.S. representative appeared to be closely watching the vice presidential debate last night, tweeting several responses to comments by the vice president during the confrontation with Senator Kamala Harris, particularly irking the New York Democrats seemed to be uh, Pence's reference to her by her widely used nickname AOC. For the record, at Mr. Uh, Mike Pence, it's Congresswoman Ocasio-Cortez to you. She responded on Twitter. Well, the Congresswoman also appeared bothered by what she saw as gender dynamics at work during the debate, in which Pence was the only male participant. Well, there are only two in a debate, so it's kind of a moot point. But she accused Pence of demanding answers for the questions he posed to Harris while trying to avoid directly answering questions put to him by the debater uh, moderator, Susan Page of USA Today. Well, each of them was guilty of that. Uh, Why is it that Mike Pence doesn't seem to have an answer to any of the questions asked to him by the debate? Uh, In this debate, Ocasio-Cortez wrote, Pence demanding that uh, Harris answer his own personal questions when he won't even answer the moderator is gross and exemplary of the gender dynamics so many women have to deal with at work. Well, imposing gender dynamics into the debate was ridiculous, but nonetheless, it's uh, the world we're currently living in. Meanwhile, ABC's Stephanopoulos accused Pence of mansplaining 
Well, he got rebuked by female panelists. Uh, Chris Wallace says that both Pence and Harris had a pretty good night, calls them out for ducking questions, both sides. And Pence slammed the Democrats for trying to overturn the results of the 2016 election, saying he has confidence in a Trump victory. The vice presidential debate, Harris ripped Trump and uh, the administration on their standing versus China. Well, a Minnesota National Guard uh, has been activated. Demonstrators gathered after the George Floyd ex-cop was released, and there was great concern about what that might uh, what that might mean. The Minnesota National Guard was activated out of an abundance of caution, according to officials on Wednesday, following the release of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin from jail after he posted bail. Out of an abundance of caution for the safety of Minnesotans, we have asked the Minnesota National Guard to prepare to assist in keeping the peace. The governor Tim Walz said about 100 soldiers were to be activated in addition to another 100 state troopers and 75 conservation officers with the State Department of Natural Resources. The personnel were to prepare for any potential unrest, the National Guard tweeted. In a statement, the Minneapolis Police Department said it would work with local, state, and federal agencies if any violence unfolded. We are aware of current and future possible flashpoints that present challenge on both local and national level, Department Spokesman John Elder said. We continue to work with our various communities um, to ensure our residents' First Amendment rights to lawfully and peacefully protest are protected while maintaining public safety for all. Well, demonstrators uh, gathered outside to march downtown according to social media posts, but there were no reports of violence, thankfully. Well, a Wisconsin federal prosecutor has warned against unrest after an officer avoided charges in the fatal shooting of a black teen. And the defund the police movement takes a toll on New York City's crime rate. Law enforcement and the Democrats critics claim Uh, the police say the L.A. protest caused tens of thousands of dollars in damage to city property, not to mention private property and the NYPD arrest of 24. Well, what they're calling spoiled brats during the Jonathan Price protest. Uh, the commissioner says, has been costly as well. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break. We'll return to some of the day's headlines. And we'll hear from David Riffle, author of Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside young men, 18 to 30. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show on this Thursday afternoon. David Riffle will be my guest in the next couple of segments, Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside young men 18 to 30. Well, Dr. Mark Siegel told Speaker Pelosi to stop pontificating about Trump's condition as he's recovering from COVID-19. Adam Silver says the NBA is going to leave the Black Lives Matter social justice messaging off the floor next season. Apparently it's costing the league. And a Florida principal who'd been fired after um, Holocaust comments that ignited outrage has been rehired. A toddler died in a hot car recently after his dad refused to let the police officers break the car window. And a fly landed on Vice President Pence's head during the vice presidential debate. Well, as you can imagine, the video went viral. The latest Fox News poll indicates that Biden has gained ground over Donald Trump. Some are skeptical about those polls, given what happened in 2016 and the fact that uh, conservatives, we're being told, are not responding to polls, but only Uh, Ballots that are cast and counted will determine the outcome of this election. Well, the richest Americans recovered most of their wealth after the COVID outbreak, according to recent reports, and a London-based investment firm made a late long-shot bid for TikTok, according to the Wall Street Journal. President Trump is pushing the reagan Aeron, better pronunciation, I'm sure, is available. It's an Eli Lilly COVID-19 treatment for emergency authorizations. He's pushing for that. 
Well, as the two vice presidential candidates sparred over key topics, um, Pence drove home some pretty key points in the vice presidential debate. Kimberly Strassel points out that he absolutely dismantles the Biden-Harris non-answer on packing the court. Harris refused to answer the question. Pence comes back on it. She giggles, then diverts again. Pence come back, uh, comes back to it. Brutal, just answer the question. Well, from the Wall Street Journal editorial board, Mr. Pence was most effective in pointing out how the far left the far the Biden Harris Democrats have moved with Donald Trump's personal antics sucking up all the media attention. Voters haven't t- heard much about Mr. Biden's two trillion dollars in spending over four years on the Green New Deal. The four trillion dollars of tax increases to uh, that will reach into the working class through higher businesses and corporate rates. Their goal of eliminating fossil fuels that would cost jobs and raise energy prices and the Biden record on foreign policy that includes opposing the raid on Osama bin Laden goes on from there. I hope you took the time to uh, watch that debate. Well, the media is criticizing the president for saying COVID-19, his contraction of it, was a blessing. The president said in his uh, special message that he believed getting the Wuhan virus was a blessing because it showed him that the drug cocktail he asked for worked so successfully that he wanted to get it to all COVID-19 sufferers, especially seniors. But he was mocked by the White House correspondent Annie Carney, uh, which was retweeted by CNN's Jake Tapper. As she said, Trump calls his illness a blessing from God. Dr. Peter Chin Hong, infectious disease specialist, says this is all in keeping with the dexamethasone speaking. Well, Adam Silver says that uh, he'll talk with the players about it, but he won't say uh, it uh, is going to end. Uh, the politicking on the field and that he realizes that fans are tiring of it. The raises the ratings rather for the finals are abysmal. And uh, the army is going to open an investigation into the North Carolina Senate candidate who um, threatened to unseat Senator Tillis and was on the road to victory. Uh, Mr. Cunningham serves as an officer in the reserve and any extramarital shenanigans falls into military jurisdiction and could result in a potential court martial. Cunningham appears to be staying in the race, blaming the sexing scandal on his opponent, Senator Tillis. Uh, This is one of the seats that's been closely watched as unseating a Republican in favor of a Democrat and perhaps um, turning the Senate to a Democrat majority, which is why it's relevant. Meanwhile, a Jewish reporter has been attacked in New York City in a protest. The reporter uh, said protesters yelled that he was a Nazi and Hitler as they chased after him during a second night of unrest over government attempts to stop the surging cases of COVID-19 across a broad swath of uh, a broad swath of Brooklyn. Meanwhile, a U.S. Postal Service worker has been arrested for tossing 99 ballots this time in a heavily Democratic area. We've seen it both in Democrat and uh, Republican areas. And Jane Fonda says COVID is God's gift to the left. In this video, she is clearly excited that 200,000 people have died so the far left can prosper. And the world's view of China is growing worse as the negative evaluations uh, skyrocket among advanced countries. Well, Louisiana is bracing for Hurricane Delta to make landfall as a major hurricane on Friday. And Derek Chauvin, ex-officer charged with the murder of George Floyd, has been released on a million dollars bond. A Manhattan prosecutor, some refer to him as an inquisitor, can obtain Trump's tax returns, according to a court ruling. And for the record, you will be told to check your Christian privilege in the very near future. We'll talk more about that later in the program. The University of Iowa and John A. Logan College have dropped diversity uh, efforts after the president banned critical race theory. Some consider this um, 
diversity training to be discriminatory in and of itself. And 21 scholars have called for the Pulitzer Board to revoke the 1619 Project Authors Prize. Well, Freedom From Religion Foundation has silenced future prayers in the Kentucky School District. And a court has ruled in favor of a Christian adoption agency threatened by a New York LGBT law. Defund the police movement has taken its toll on New York City's crime rate as shootings and murders rates have spiked. And Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer brings home an F on her fiscal policy report card. Alyssa Milano says Michigan's lucky to have leaders like the ones who just received an abuse of power smackdown from the state's Supreme Court. And thanks, Captain Obvious, Europe wants Biden to beat Trump, according to a new poll. Well, Puerto Rico's government ha- governor rather, has endorsed Donald Trump, saying he represents Puerto Ricans. And the Department of Justice brings charges over scores of mail-in ballots found in New Jersey in a dumpster. Well, Turkey has rekindled the Armenian genocide, according to Front Page magazine. Well, today, or I should say on this day in history, 1944, The Adventures of Ozzie and Harriet, starring Ozzie and Harriet Nelson, makes its debut on CBS radio. And in 1998, on this day in history, the House of Representatives triggers an open-ended impeachment inquiry against President Bill Clinton in a 258-176 vote. 31 Democrats joined majority Republicans in opening the way for nationally televised impeachment hearings. On this day in history, 1956, Don Larson pitches the only perfect game in the World Series to date as the New York Yankees beat the Brooklyn Dodgers in Game 5, 2 to nothing. 2005, a magnitude 7.6 earthquake flattens villages on the Pakistan-India border, killing an estimated 86,000 people. And finally, on this day in history, 2017, Harvey Weinstein is fired from the Weinstein Company amid allegations that he was responsible for decades of sexual harassment against actresses and employees. Well, of course, the big news story for the last 24 hours has been the vice presidential debate, the one and only Vice President Mike Pence and challenger Senator Kamala Harris. They sparred over a series of topics at the 2020 debate on Wednesday that was largely calm and policy focused. Well, in the first and only debate between the two candidates contending for the vice presidency in the November 3rd election, the candidates largely sidestepped direct questions as they returned to their main policy points related to the larger topic at hand. Standout issues during the debate included COVID-19, the Supreme Court nomination, the economy, and China. USA Today's Washington Bureau Chief Susan Page moderated the the planned 90-minute exchange at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. The exchange had few interruptions and no heated remarks, a stark contrast to the first presidential debate on September 29th. Well, social media users were quick to point out two novel events during the debate, which included the Chinese regime appearing to have censored Pence's debate remarks critical of the Chinese Communist Party and a short uh, period where a fly landed on Pence's hair. Pence and Harris were uh, separated by plexiglass barriers and people in the audience were socially distanced and measures taken to minimize the transmission of the uh, what was called the uh, Chinese Communist Party virus. Well, Harris launched into the debate accusing the Trump administration of having mishandled the virus pandemic and alleged that Pence and President Trump had minimized the seriousness of the virus back in January. Um, Harris uh, targeted Trump on the pandemic as Pence defended the administration response, saying the American people have witnessed what is the greatest failure of any presidential administration in the history of our country, she said, uh, as he invoked 210,000 deaths 
um, attributed to the virus and alleged that the Trump administration still don't have a plan. Well, Pence, of course, took issue to that uh, with a lengthy defense, said that uh, Trump has prioritized the health of Americans and suspended travel from China at the end of January. The travel ban had exempted some categories of people, such as U.S. citizens and permanent residents. And he noted that Joe Biden had opposed that decision, said it was xenophobic and hysterical. Well, Democratic vice presidential nominee Kamala Harris and the vice president participated in the um, event. We'll talk more about it uh, later in the program, but we need to take a quick break. And when we return, we'll talk with David Riffle, author of Mentoring Warriors, coming alongside young men, 18 to 30. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest takes on a challenge, the challenge of helping young men navigate through life well. He tackles in the book we're going to be talking about the challenging topic of how to be a mentor and how to uh, be mentored. He brings his decades of mentoring practice to the pages of his book, Mentoring Warriors, Coming Alongside Men 18 to 30 Years Old. Now, some of you already know the need for this kind of, uh, of uh, mentoring relationship for young men. Others might need to learn a bit more about it. So David Riffle joins us to talk about just that. David Riffle is the foundation, uh, or I should say founder and executive director of Mentoring Warriors. It's an organization that's dedicated to equipping men to mentor and preparing warriors, men ages to 1830, for life. Having gone through his warrior years, essentially mentorless, God placed him uh, in his heart uh, a heart for warriors to come alongside them as they figure life out. He and his uh, Canadian wife live in Kansas. They have two married children, enjoy spending time at their family cottage in Ontario. And he joins us today to talk about mentoring warriors coming alongside men 18 to 30 years old. David Riffle, thank you so much for joining us. Let's begin to talk uh, by talking a bit about um, Mentoring Warriors, the organization that you have founded. My understanding is you are an architect by trade. Tell us a little bit about your work in mentoring. Sure, yeah. I'm an, I like always say, too, I'm an architect by day and a, and a mentor by night. But the reality is mentoring is uh, kind of full circle. The Lord's really done some things over the probably last decades or so of me mentoring young men that the Lord's just placed on my heart through my own experiences in my own mentor or my own warrior days that I uh, saw the need for it. And so what basically happened, to kind of give you an idea of how it started, about 10 years ago, the church we're attending had in their high school ministry an opportunity for adults to sign up to be prayer warriors for high school students. Well, our son Justin was a freshman back then, and the way the, the, way the, uh, the small groups were organized were by grade and by gender. So There'd be a bunch of guys over at our house playing basketball out in the front front yard in the in the driveway, and then he'd come in for a Bible study and small group time. And there were some new new guys to the church, and so I realized, you know, hey, I'm going to get to know these guys one way or the other because they're hanging around my son. So why don't I sign up to be a prayer warrior for a couple of them? So I did, and we started swapping like text uh, texting back and forth prayer requests, and eventually started to meet with them one-on-one, maybe every month or two like that, and then we started doing some things together. And as that happened, what happened over that time, these young guys are now growing up to be 16, 17 years old. They meet up with me, and they start opening up their heart to me about struggles they're going through in cases of pornography or other things that they're struggling with. And all of a sudden, I realized that um, I've become this safe place for them 
to figure out how are they going to manage through or navigate through life Mm -hmm. and those days that are moving on towards basically young adulthood. So that's how it all kind of got started for me. Um, And so out of all of that, a little kind of a little mix of all that, about four and a half years ago, two weeks after my daughter's uh, wedding, I unexpectedly, of course, the Lord knew, but I didn't, I had uh, quadruple heart bypass surgery. So when a guy's in your 50s and you have heart surgery, it really rocks your world. And, and you want to know, Lord, what is my purpose? What, where am I moving forward? So out of that, out of that, coupled with some of my growing up experiences, God really placed in me a hunger. What can I do to help start helping raise up men to be mentors and to pour into the next generation of young guys? So that's how the book came about. And that's how Mentoring Warriors of the Ministry came about as well. Yeah, yeah. Now describe the, the word warriors in the context of mentoring, because some might misunderstand um, what that means when you're talking about young men 18 to 30. Sure. So I like to look at it this way. There's, there's kind of like six, I call them like six stages of manhood. There's the boy, and then when they get to around 13, they turn into a, what we call the cowboy stage. And then roughly around 18 to about 30, they turn into the warrior. And the warrior is the guy that he's trying to figure life out. He's on the frontier. There's a lot of different areas of life that he, um, he's just trying to, trying to make sense of, whether it's in relationships or in faith or in his career, with education, um, even his manhood identity, uh, skills, self-management, life skills. So he's trying to figure those out, and that's the warrior stage because so many of the so many of the choices that he makes in those years, in those 10, 12 years, are going to impact him for the rest of his life. Most men, if they're going to get married, not all of them, but most of them get married sometime during their warrior stage. Um, and then the next stages, when they move into their 30s and 40s, they're basically establishing their role as a husband, as a dad, as a as an employee or an owner of a company. And then eventually they become an older guy, Lord willing, but they're walking with the Lord, and then they become what we call a sage, kind of that guy that has a lot of wisdom and that can pour into the previous generation. So a warrior is that guy, he's he's on he's on the battlefront. And where where will the choices he has, he makes, where will it take him next? Mm-hmm. In our in our culture, um, there's some significant challenges. One of the things that you point out is that suicide for young men is three and a half times higher than that of young women. What are some of the challenges that young men in our culture today that seem to be a bit adrift uh, that they face? Well, you know, when uh, I've had a couple of experiences with that. So when I was 17, I struggled with suicidal thoughts. And I can tell you from personal experience, even though I had made a faith commitment to Christ at 12, there, because of my years up to 17, I really hadn't been mentored, really hadn't been guided. I struggle with what is my purpose? How, what is my identity? And so I know a lot of guys that struggle in that area of, of, of thinking of suicide or attempting it. Um, it's a cry for help. Here a couple of years ago, one of the young men that I mentor um, calls me up and says, "Hey, can you?" Or he texts me and he says, "Can you keep a secret?" I said, "Depends on what it is." And he goes, "I have a gun," 
well, he was, uh, he had a handgun and he was ready to uh, take his life. And he mm. was reaching out to me. Why was he calling me? Why was he reaching me? Because he's asking for help. Um, here just uh, about eight, 10 months ago, another young man was around 18 or 19. Um, same thing. He had a rope and he was going to hang himself. He had broken up with his girlfriend and just felt like there was no other options for him. And thankfully, the Lord led him through an opportunity where he could realize there was hope. I think what guys, when they're struggling like that, I think it boils down to really two questions that I believe are ultimately God-given in every every man. And I like to say it this way, from the time he's a little toddler until the man dies, the two questions that are driving him and everything is, does anybody actually delight in me? Does anybody, does my life matter? Does anybody actually love me unconditionally? Now, we know that's in Christ, but he's looking for that in some sort of relationship, and typically in a man who can lead him, whether it's his father or a relative, an uncle, or a man in his church. He's looking for that. Does someone delight in me? And then the second question that they're asking, and I've, I've asked this of myself, do I have what it takes to be a man? this idea of validation. Can I do the next step in my life? And when guys hit those, hit those warrior ages, that warrior age, and they're facing those um, frontiers, as I call them, those new challenges, sometimes anxiety gets to them, fear. They start believing lies that uh, they're not good enough or they don't have what it takes. And um, it's when a mentor can step into their lives or they feel safe enough to reach out and say, hey, I, I've got a gun. And I'm asking basically what he's doing by his emotions and actions, asking for help. When a mentor can step in there, the Lord can use that relationship to circumvent what could be otherwise uh, a, tragic loss of a, a tragic loss of a young man. So Absolutely. I would say those two things, that idea of delight and of validation are core to what those young men are searching for. We are talking this afternoon with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. We'll continue that conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing a conversation with David Riffle. He is the author of Mentoring Warriors. It's an excellent book, very practical to help uh, men to prepare to mentor other younger men between the ages of 18 to 30. One of the things that you say is um, men were not intended to, particularly young men, were not intended to walk through life alone. Um, we tend to think of men as being... Um, independent and, and sort of eschewing this notion of being close to other men. But what do you mean when you say young men were never meant to do life alone? And perhaps that relates to the two questions you just raised before the break about the things that, um, that all men uh, come to at some point in their life. Right. You know, when, we, when God says we're made in his image, he talks about the fact that we're also made for relationship. And God never intended for man, you know, it says when in Genesis, when, when God made Adam, you know, he was very good, but he said, if it's not good, that he's alone. So God's wired it within the Trinity to have a relationship, and he's wired it in us to want to have that vertical relationship with the Lord. But also he's wired us to have what I call horizontal or human relationships. And one of the things that you see throughout Scripture 
Old Testament, you see in the New Testament, is this idea of older generations speaking into the younger generations. Um, it says in, I think it's Judges chapter 2, it's talking about when um, Joshua died. He's like 110 years old. And a few verses later, it says that another generation grew up who did not know the ways of the Lord nor experienced them. And it says, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord. And, and so it's one of those things where I believe one of the challenges we have um, with mentoring is we've become so siloed in our generational thinking that we just mm-hmm. think of our own generation, and we've lost that idea that God's put me on this planet. He's put me on this earth for a purpose, and that purpose is to speak into the lives of the next generation. I was, I was at a conference this weekend, a men's conference, and uh, we were talking about mentoring warriors, and I, I told those men, I said, the gospel is not going to stop on my watch. Um, I'm going to be like Paul, who was to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, where Paul says to Timothy, the things you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust the faithful men who would be able to teach others also. And then in that short little verse, it's talking about four generations. So men need each other. We weren't made to live life alone because the way that men learn is actually in having those iron sharpens iron, man-to-man kind of relationships. I know when I'm held accountable in a godly man-to-man type of relationship like that, I excel in whatever that area of my, my life is. And when I don't have that iron sharpens iron, that man who's speaking into my life, um, I start to flounder. And so I, I just really see that's how God's wired us as men, uh, yeah. why we can't go this alone. You mentioned six key areas of life that are based on biblical principles for healthy mentoring relationships. Can you share what those are? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, The first one is self-management, and it's everything from basically, you know, time management, budgets. Um, One young man um, had gotten out of prison and had been in for four years. He's 23 now and just had no idea how to manage his time or to manage his budget. So I would sit down with him and help him kind of process through, and we'd have some accountability on how he managed his money and and things like that. So self-management, just guys learning how to prioritize and understand what's important. Um, Another one is uh, life skills. And a lot of times I like to joke on that one and say, you know, a lot of guys in the warrior stage, they like to go to YouTube. Well, this is how I'm going to change my tire or change my oil or fix the toilet. And YouTube has its place. But we need to learn life skills and the use of our hands. And often that comes through having another guy who's been there, has experience in there, asking older guys into our lives to help them. So life skills is another one. Another big one is education and career. Um, The whole question is, what am I going to be when I grow up? Uh, It always boils down to a lot of times um, how's God wired you? Um, give you an example. One of the young men that I mentor uh, was going down the path of mechanical engineering in university because that's what his dad did. Well, he come to find out he hated math. He struggled so bad with it. And through much prayer and conversation with myself and some other men and also with his advisors, he realized that where his aptitudes were, his skills and interests, 
within graphic design. And so he switched majors, and I have watched that young man just soar because he's finally figuring out how God's wired him. And the reality is uh, that young man is the one that created our Mentoring Warriors logo. So hmm. that's, that's a good example of just working with the guys on education and career. The fourth one is faith. And this one really is a core to a young man. If they've grown up in a Christian family, most warrior age men, even if they've grown up in a Christian family, will have a tendency to um, not go to church and they'll walk away from Jesus for a while. And so a lot of times the question is, is this my faith? Is it my parents' faith? What do I really believe? We'll often have conversations about doctrine and what the scriptures say and who is Jesus and what does it mean not just to know Jesus in my head, but to have a living, actual living relationship with him. So faith is very, very important. The fifth one is um, relationships. You know, it says in Genesis that uh, God says to man that he shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and the two become one flesh. So there's that part of leaving mom and dad, leaving the support of the home, moving out. And there's also that, that other challenge of meeting a girl. Is this the woman God has for me? I just had lunch today with a young man who is dating a girl, and um, it's that, is this the woman? You know, he's 22 years old, and, and how do I discern? Is this the relationship that God, do I want to, you know, is this the one I want to mm-hmm. marry? Uh, and then the sixth one, the last one, is what I call identity, manhood identity. What does it mean to be a man? You know, sometimes we can joke and say, well, is a man because he's got a gun and he has a plaid shirt? Is that a man? Or, or what is a man? You know, how, what is it? And it's not really about what you wear. It's, it's about your character. And the scriptures teach a lot about that godly character. And the more that a man walks with Christ, the more his character is going to grow. And as a segue to that or a side to that identity is often we talk about sexual purity. That is a big issue with a lot of young men. Um, mm-hmm. they, how do they practice godly self-control? How do they live out practicing holiness as a single man? And then how do they practice that, frankly, when they get married in a godly way? So those are the six areas, self-management, life skills, education, career, faith, relationships, and manhood identity. Those are the big ones we talk about all the time. We're talking about the book Mentoring Warriors, my guest, David Riffle. What does a successful or an unsuccessful mentoring relationship look like? Well, I can tell you on the, on the successful side, I'll tell you what that is, and I'll give you maybe a, a tip on how you know if it's going to be an unsuccessful one. On the successful side, I'm going to say there's three things that um, would always need to happen when you get together. One is, in one form or fashion, you guys spend some time in the Word. And that could be anything from a, a formal Bible study to just memorizing Scripture together to challenging each other on how you're going to apply or live out some of God's Word. But always, in one form or fashion or another, get the Word into your conversation. The second one, I say this just Always, always, always pray together. Bring not just uh, the day's events, but God, what are some ways that you need to father my heart? And how can my mentor help me in this process? So pray together. And then the third thing that I help, think helps with a successful mentoring relationship is go do something fun together. Do something you guys like. Maybe it is shooting guns or going fishing or 
watching the races or, or going to a basketball game or going camping or whatever it is, but do things to build a commonality. And what happens is when you do that relational aspect of mentoring, it creates a safe environment so that some of the deeper things that in a young man's heart has a safe place where they can be dealt with and the Lord can be brought into it. So those are three things, the word, the prayer, and doing something fun together. On the flip side, I can tell you what does not help is when a mentor enables the problem that the warrior is having, whether it's finances, and I can tell you a story about that, or whether it's just in other areas of his life, uh, don't be the person that's enabling the problem. Um, that's not for a healthy, healthy relationship at all. The book is titled Mentoring Warriors. David Riffle is the author. It's an excellent practical resource for those who are looking to mentor young men 18 to 30. We're going to conclude our conversation, but uh, tomorrow we'll play another segment of this conversation. So I hope you'll join us then. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, Vice President Mike Pence and Challengers Senator Kamala Harris sparred over a series of topics at the 2020 vice presidential debate on Wednesday that was largely pretty calm and policy focused. Senator Harris launched into a debate accusing the Trump administration of having mishandled the uh, uh, COVID-19 pandemic and alleged that uh, Pence and President Trump had minimized the seriousness of the virus back in January. Well, the vice president, of course, took issue with that characterization. He took a lengthy defense um, and said that the Trump administration had prioritized the health of the American people. Uh, That decision alone brought in invaluable time, referring to the travel ban that he put in place that Joe Biden had opposed. Well, Pence accused Biden of having plagiarized the Trump administration's actions against the uh, virus. He also said the Trump administration was informed that if we did everything right, we could still lose 100,000 to 200,000 American lives. This accords with the White House Coronavirus Response uh, Coordinator, Dr. Deborah Birx, um, back in March. Both candidates dodged the question when asked about whether whether they have consulted with their presidential candidates about safeguards or procedures when it comes to the issue of presidential disability. Harris instead chose to speak about her background and qualifications, and Pence opted to speak about the 2009 swine flu epidemic, which occurred when Joe Biden was vice president. Pence pointed out that 60 million Americans had contracted the disease and that if it had been as deadly as the uh, uh, COVID-19, it would have cost uh, 2 million American lives. Well, the, uh, When asked later in the debate to characterize the United States' relationship with China, the vice president moved quickly to express Trump's displeasure at China's handling of the pandemic and contrasted Biden's cheerleading for China with Trump's standing up to China. First and foremost, China is to blame for the coronavirus, the vice president pointed out. We want to improve the relationship, but we're going to level the playing field. We're going to hold China accountable for what they did to America with the coronavirus. Well, Senator Harris was quick to blame the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic for the loss of American lives. She also accused the Trump-Pence administration of being responsible for the loss of 300,000 manufacturing jobs attributed such loss to President Trump's tit-for-tat tariffs with China. At another point in the debate, Harris accused the the, uh, uh, Trump administration of having lost the trade war with China because the nation has seen a loss of thousands of jobs. Lost the trade war with China. Joe Biden never fought it. 
He's been a cheerleader for the Chinese Communist Party for decades, the vice president responded. He noted that the nation lost 200,000 manufacturing jobs when Biden was vice president, and Obama said such jobs would never return. However, the Trump administration in the first three years created 500,000 jobs due to various actions, including deregulation. On the economy, Pence provided a contrast between the Obama-Biden administration's approach, which he said was tax and spend, regulate and fail, and the Trump administration's approach, which he says was cut taxes across the board. We've already added back 11.6 million jobs because we had a president who cut taxes, rolled back regulations, unleashed American energy, fought for free and fair trade, secured $4 trillion in the Congress of the United States to give direct payments to families, saved 50 million jobs through the Paycheck Protection Program. We literally have spared no expense to help the American people and the American worker through this. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris went uh, want to raise taxes, he added uh, to the, uh, uh, the, the uh, comments. Well, at multiple points throughout the debate, the vice president repeatedly raised the matter of Biden-Harris $2 trillion version of the Green New Deal, while Harris repeatedly condemned the Trump administration's handling of the pandemic. Pence said that Biden and Harris sought to abolish fossil fuels, at fuels rather, and ban fracking, which would cost hundreds of thousands of American jobs, and he accused Biden of wanting to surrender to China. Harris told Pence that Biden will not raise taxes on anyone who makes less than $400,000 a year and will not end fracking. She also claimed that it was the Obama-Biden administration's Recovery Act that brought America back from the 2008 recession, and now the Trump-Pence administration wants to take credit. Well, Pence countered Harris in a latter um, topic, saying that uh, Senator Harris is denying the fact that they're uh, going to raise taxes on every American. Joe Biden said twice in the debate last week on, on day one, he was going to repeal the Trump tax cuts. Those tax cuts delivered $2,000 in tax relief to the average family. Then they moved on to the Supreme Court. In another memorable exchange, the vice president confronted the senator over whether she would support expanding the Supreme Court, a move that would allow the Democratic president to put their choice of justices to the bench and perhaps keep that uh, advantage for one party over the other. Uh, for uh, for all time. Harris evaded the question and pivoted to speak against the confirmation of Judge Amy Coney Barrett, whom Trump nominated to fill the seat uh, left by the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Joe and I are very clear, she said. The American people are voting right now, and it should be their decision about who will serve on the most important body for a lifetime. Again, did not answer directly the question. Well, the vice president responded, once again, you gave a non-answer. Joe Biden gave a non-answer. You know the American people deserve a straight answer. And if you haven't figured it out yet, the straight answer is they are going to pack the Supreme Court if they somehow win this election. Well, Biden had to also refuse to provide a def definitive answer over the matter at the first presidential debate. Meanwhile, Senator Harris accused the president of doing his own packing of the court. Trump has appointed more than 200 federal judges of whom 50 are appeals court judges to fill various judicial vacancies left by the Obama administration. And do you know that the 50 people who President Trump appointed to the Court of Appeals for lifetime appointments, not one is black, Harris said, apparently concerned about a lack of black representation in the Court of Appointments. When Harris was asked about her stance on Roe versus Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court ruling that struck down state-level restrictions on abortion, she said, I will always fight for a woman's right to make a decision about her own body. It should be her decision and not that of President Trump or Vice President Michael Pence. 
This is another one of those cases where there's such a dramatic contrast. Pence responded, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris support taxpayer funding of abortion all the way up to the moment of birth, late-term abortion. They want to increase funding to Planned Parenthood of America. Now, for our part, I would never pre- uh, presume how judges rule on the Supreme Court of the United States, but will continue to stand strong for the right to life. On climate change and fracking, Harris said Biden's administration would grow the economy through green energy, but she also denied past support for banning fracking. Now, she was one of the original signatories to the Green New Deal, uh, which has sort of faded in these um, these debates. She didn't go on to say Joe Biden will not ban fracking. This is a fact. I will repeat that Joe Biden has been very clear that he thinks about growing jobs. Part of those jobs uh, that will be created by Joe Biden are going to be about clean energy and renewable energy because Joe understands that the West Coast of our country is burning, including my home state of California. Harris also spoke about climate related problems in the Southeast and in the Midwest. Joe sees what is happening in the Gulf states, which are being battered by storms. She went on from there. Pence, for his part, he addressed the issue of climate change, but also attacked the Biden campaign's promise for the environment. As I said, Susan, the climate is changing. Um, We will follow science, he went on to say. Um, Joe Biden has been a cheerleader of the Communist Chinese Party over the last several decades uh, on that issue as well. Well, the debate went back and forth on race relations. Of course, uh, it was brought up that the, uh, the judges appointed by the um, Trump administration are largely um, non-minority, and that was an issue raised on that issue. Now, Doug Schoen, who um, picks winners and losers on style and substance, he pointed out that in Wednesday's debate, like most vice presidential debates historically, um, likely they're not going to impact the polls, change any attitudes, cause either campaign to gain or lose any voters or move any undecided voters one way or the other. And this is especially true because this debate in particular lacked any meaningful policy discussion between the candidates beyond echoing previously articulated policy positions. Both dodged different questions, but both dodged questions and pivoted to uh, rehearsed an- answers and topics of their choice, uh, a characteristic of both Um, candidates. As a result, uh, the night was a draw on both substance and style. Now, that may um, differ on the part of those who actually listen to what was being said. And uh, generally, we bring our preferences with us into these face-to-face confrontations, debates. Um, So winner, loser, for the most part, what I'm reading among those pundits who do this sort of thing professionally, it was a draw. Um, Kamala Harris didn't do anything to um, undermine the confidence her supporters would have that she could serve as the vice president. And Vice President uh, Pence uh, didn't say or do anything that would undermine his uh, supporters' support, uh, given his uh, role as the number two. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Need to take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We've been talking about the vice presidential debate, but the second presidential debate has also uh, made its way into the crosshairs. Is there some disagreement about what should happen? The um, organization that is responsible for the commission on presidential debates, responsible for making decisions about these debates, announced apparently without speaking to either of the campaigns that the next um, debate will be virtual. Well, that didn't sit well with at least one campaign. Well, again, the Commission on Presidential Debates announced today that the second debate between President Trump, Democratic presidential nominee, and former Vice President Joe Biden will be conducted remotely. 
the commission said that the uh, town uh, town hall style meeting participants and the moderator, Steve Scully, who's the senior executive producer and political editor for C-SPAN Networks, will convene at the Adrian Arsht Center for the Performing Arts in Miami-Dade County in Florida. That's in uh, Miami. Uh, Trump and Biden faced off last week in a fiery first debate, and the second debate is currently scheduled for October 15th. Well, the decision comes after President Trump tested positive for the coronavirus last week. And shortly after the announcement, Trump says that he would not participate in a virtual debate with Biden. He said the commission changed the debate style, and that's not acceptable to us. And by the way, they didn't consult the campaigns before doing so. He said Thursday morning, I'm not going to do a virtual debate. I'm not going to waste my time at a virtual debate. I beat him in the first debate. I beat him easily, Trump said, adding that he expects to beat him in the second debate also, but refuses to sit at a computer to debate him. They're trying to protect Biden, he said. Everybody is... um, Uh, is trying to protect him. Well, the Trump campaign manager, Bill Stipen, who also tested positive for the coronavirus last week, he slammed the commission's decision, saying that's not what debates are about or how they're done. Here are the facts. President Trump will have posted multiple negative tests prior to the debate, so there is no need for the unilateral declaration. The safety of all involved can easily be achieved without canceling a chance for voters to see both candidates go head to head. On Wednesday evening, Vice President Pence debated Senator Kamala Harris. Uh, They set it up with the social distancing and a um, plexiglass uh, divider. But the Commission on Presidential Debates announced that the second debate between the president and the Democratic presidential nominee will uh, be conducted remotely. Uh, the commission said that the town hall participants and the moderator will be in one location, and this was a unilateral decision that they have made. Well, as I mentioned, it did not sit well with the president, who says he has no intention of, a par- of participating in this kind of an event, and also suggested that part of the concern is that the vice president uh, could have access to help uh, on the side, that he could have a staff feeding answers, that he could uh, could essentially cheat. So the president in his first interview since the positive test says this is not going to be acceptable. Uh, so now they're considering changing the date, eliminating the second debate altogether. Um, and I suppose in the next few days um, they'll announce what will actually happen. But if the president maintains his current position, there will be no virtual uh, debate coming up next week, which was the second of only three debates between the two presidential candidates. Meanwhile, Democratic candidate Joe Biden leads President Donald Trump by 53 to 43 percent margin in a new Fox News national survey of likely voters conducted after the combatic debate and the president's testing positive for coronavirus. Well, Biden's 10 point advantage is up from a five point lead last month. Voters think the stakes are high. A 70 percent majority believe our democracy, which is actually a constitutional republic, is in danger in this election, including about eight in 10 Biden supporters and six in 10 Trump supporters. On the coronavirus, most uh, that's about 72 percent favor requiring masks when people are outside their homes, while the number who think the virus is under control is small, about 24 percent. Most uh, say it's mostly or completely. That's down from a month ago at 30 percent. Almost twice as many voters prioritize limiting the spread of coronavirus over restarting the economy. Well, coronavirus and the economy are the two issues that matter most to voters in deciding their choice for president. The same number, 44 percent, say the pandemic will be the single most important factor as uh, 
say the economy will be the top factor. That's more than, say, the same about health care, racism, the Supreme Court and violent crimes. Well, Biden leads Trump by 39 points among those saying the coronavirus is the most important factor, while Trump is preferred among those saying that the economy uh, is the most important factor by 12. Well, twice as many voters um, want to keep Obamacare in place as want to repeal the health care law. And voters who prioritize health care favor Biden by 32 points at 64 to 32 percent, respectively. Those who say violent crime is the most important factor to their vote favor Trump by a single point, while voters who prioritize racism back Biden by 44 A 58 percent majority think the way Trump talks about racial inequality is leading to an increase in violence, including uh, 28 percent of those supporting him. For comparison, 38 percent believe Biden's language incites violence, including 17 percent who are backing him. Well, on the Supreme Court, 54 percent don't think a president should get to appoint someone to a lifetime position this close to an election. While 44 percent think it is uh, the responsibility of current leaders to act to fill the vacancy created by Justice Ginsburg's death. This is a reversal from 2016 in the wake of Justice Scalia's death, when most felt it was the responsibility of current leaders to act by 62 to 34 percent margin. Views uh, divided evenly over increasing the number of justices on the Supreme Court or packing the court with about one in five. And I'm not sure most people know the implications of of that, but Biden leads Trump by five points among those saying the high court is the most important factor in their vote. At the same time, half would vote to confirm Amy Coney Barrett. Nine in 10 Republicans favor her confirmation, while eight in 10 Democrats oppose it. Support uh, for Barrett's confirmation is... uh, touch better than the highest number for Brett Kavanaugh received in his nomination and in line with the highest Neil Gorsuch received as well. Well, among groups, Biden owes his lead mainly to support from women uh, up 19 points, especially suburban women, Hispanics and voters under the age of 35. Trump is favored by whites, white women without a, a college degree, white Catholics, rural voters and white men without a college degree. In 2016, Trump won men by 11 points. And those age 65 and older by nine, according to Pew Research, validating the voter data. Well, the new survey finds Biden with a slight edge among seniors and uh, men up two points, one points, respectively. Equal numbers of Biden um, and Trump supporters uh, backing uh, are extremely committed to their candidates with 75 percent extremely committed to Biden, 77 percent committed to Trump uh, and extremely interested in the election. Voters planning to uh, cast a ballot by mail favor Biden by 41 points, while Trump leads by 11 points among those planning to vote in person. Well, these are polls. uh, How uh, uh, they conduct the survey, the nature of the questions, who's being asked, if there's a balance among political parties and so on, always uh, skews the answers to these polls. But they do give us a, a snapshot into a singular poll of a particular group at a given time, and they can be uh, useful, but I would admit of some limited use. I think the 2016 election is a great example of how polling can be somewhat misleading. And again, until ballots are cast, counted, uh, we're not going to know the outcome of this election. Meanwhile, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a dramatic announcement during her weekly press conference today by telling reporters that she intends to discuss a constitutional measure to remove President Trump from office again, following questions regarding his health as he recovers from coronavirus. The 20th Amendment allows for the vice president to become acting president 
if it's determined that the president is unable to discharge the powers and duties of his office. Tomorrow, by the way, tomorrow, come here tomorrow, Pelosi said, we're going to be talking about the 25th Amendment. She had earlier questioned the status of the president's health as well as exactly how long he has had COVID-19. The 25th Amendment requires a declaration of the president's inability to from the vice president and either a majority of either the heads of executive branch departments or of uh, such other body as Congress may by law provide to be sent to the Speaker of the House, in this case, Pelosi, and the president pro tempore of the Senate, currently Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa. So interestingly enough, looking for another way to unseat the president or at least to have him declared unfit because of his COVID uh, diagnosis. Um, And uh, again, the president referring to this as just another distraction and the vice president as a continuation of the effort from the very beginning to unseat a duly elected president. We'll continue to follow this developing story. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, this November, Portland will see a mayoral election like none before. Mayor Ted Wheeler is running against challenger Sarah Iannarone in a race defined by months-long protests and the coronavirus pandemic. Well, Wheeler had a, a healthy lead over his opponent back in May. In the primary, he fell just short of the threshold he needed to avoid a runoff. And boy, does he regret that now. Days after that primary, the death of George Floyd, the ongoing protests in Portland have upended his uh, campaign and certainly that race. In fact, recent polls show that his opponent now has an 11-point lead, uh, but with a large amount of viewers uh, still undecided. Well, on October 8th, which is today, Uh, Both candidates are going to make their cases to voters in a debate hosted by KGW and The Oregonian. Now, you may be debated out, but it might be worth your while to at least tape it and watch it at some point. These two candidates don't differ enough from one another, but uh, there are some significant differences in terms of how far left each of them is prepared to go. The candidates will face questions both from KGW anchor uh, Laurel Porter and Oregonian reporter Everton Bailey, as well as questions Portland residents sent via video. Uh, The Portland mayor debate will air this evening, 7 o'clock p.m. You can watch it on KGW TV and uh, the KGW app, YouTube and OregonLive.com. So if you want to know more about the um, uh, two candidates who would like to be the mayor of Portland in 2021 and moving forward, uh, that debate is tonight on KGW and the platforms I've mentioned. Well, during the 130 days of rioting in Portland, now not every protest is a riot. I'm not trying to overstate the case, but during the 130 days where there have been protests slash riots and upheaval, Portland police have issued 979 criminal charges against violent protesters. To date, 666 of that 974 criminal charges have been dropped by Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. Now, one might argue, well, perhaps there was a misunderstanding. Maybe the charges didn't apply. But it is a little bit uh, frustrating to think that of the 666, or excuse me, the 974 criminal acts, only a handful have actually been charged. Rioting alone is no longer a crime in the city of Portland under Multnomah County District Attorney Mike Schmidt. Um, Of 39 criminal charges for assaulting a police officer, only seven appear to be moving forward with prosecution. And for many uh, Oregonians, for many Portlanders, that is outrageous. And we'll continue to follow the story, but this uh, certainly follows the announcement that uh, Multnomah District Attorney Mike Schmidt made some time ago about the fact that he was unwilling to hold individuals accountable for their actions that may violate the law. And we're seeing that borne out 
and the fruit is few of them are facing criminal penalties. Well, Portland Public Schools extended their distance learning plan into 2021. I suppose there's no big surprise there, but they're citing safety concerns from the continued coronavirus pandemic. Well, the schools are going to remain in distance learning through the 28th of January, according to uh, the superintendent, Guadalupe Guerrero, who uh, during a board meeting on Tuesday night um, said that this will be the case. So students in Oregon's largest school district will not see the inside of a classroom until 2021. Well, this week they announced uh, its students, with little exception, will be learning remotely via district-issued Chromebooks until the 28th and end of the second academic quarter. Well, the health metrics just aren't trending in a way that will allow us to open schools at this time. That's a quote from the superintendent. Beaverton officials made a similar announcement in late September, saying students in fourth grade and higher will not be considered for in-person instruction until February of next year. Well, the district may allow its youngest students, those in kindergarten, first and second, as well as third grade, into school buildings sooner. Officials expect to announce their decision later this month. Well, in order for schools to reopen for young children, the county's uh, uh, they're located in has to register fewer than 30 coronavirus cases per 100,000 residents for three consecutive weeks and test uh, a test positivity rate of 5% or lower for just as long. Well, before a district can allow students across every grade level to re-enter its building, counties have to meet an even stricter threshold, 10 positive cases or fewer per 100,000 residents for three weeks. Well, Multnomah County hasn't uh, come under 32 cases per 100,000 residents since the start of the outbreak. Washington County registered a low 26 in mid-September. That's per 100,000. Well, once again, the superintendent says we need the public health metrics to dramatically improve. I'll add my plea in asking all of us in the larger community to do our part by observing safe practices, including and especially wearing masks. It's going to take all of us to get those metrics to where they need to be. Well, Portland Public Schools officials say that they're working to bring some students in for in-person learning, such as high schoolers who aren't on track to graduate and students with disabilities. The district will also offer on-site child care at nine schools starting later this month. The district uh, reopening uh, fortunes aren't just tied to case counts in Multnomah County, where all but a handful of its schools are located. Because more than 10 percent of its staff live in both Washington and Clackamas counties, Portland Public Schools may not apply to reopen any of its buildings for in-person instruction unless the entire three-county metro area meets state coronavirus metrics. So it's going to be a um, long road to opening schools. And once again, the state has to be... um, at or below 5% COVID-19 positivity rate for three weeks. Counties have to have cases drop below 10 per 100,000 residents per week for at least three weeks. And counties must also have at or below 5% positivity rate for at least three weeks before there's any serious consideration of reopening the schools for in-person learning. We're now seven months into the coronavirus crisis, the ongoing challenge for Oregon's small business. Ultimately, it's to stay in business, continue serving customers, keep Oregonians working, and uh, all while keeping everyone safe. It's no easy task. Well, the U.S. Congress recognized the financial hardship experienced by families and businesses because of sudden job losses and business closures by passing the CARES Act with overwhelming bipartisan support, at least back then. Among other provisions, the act authorized economic impact payments or stimulus checks for individuals and households. It created the Paycheck Protection Program to keep as many Americans working as possible. 
and made significant reforms to the federal tax code to provide tax relief for businesses. Now, normally, Oregon automatically connects to the federal tax code. So the starting point for determining an Oregon taxpayer state income tax liability is directly connected to one's federal taxable income. Unfortunately for Oregon taxpayers, this time around, the state legislature has occasionally decided to disconnect from certain tax-saving provisions of the federal tax code. And that requires an add-back of that federal deduction and subtraction on your uh, Oregon income tax filings. Now, you might recall that legislators uh, did this in 2018 when they disconnected from one of the most popular features of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, the 20% deduction for pass-through businesses. Well, recently, the legislature was once again considering a costly disconnection. The bill was never formally introduced during the August special session, but there is already talk of another special session, which means the state legislature could still pass this ill-conceived tax increase. Well, the proposal would have diverted much-needed cash from the pockets of struggling Oregon businesses to state coffers, making it harder for these employers to keep their doors open and to put unemployment, unemployed Oregonians rather back to work. With a legislative concept known as LC2 would disconnect Oregon from three parts of the CARES Act. I won't go into much more detail. This is something to keep your eyes and ears open for. We'll certainly continue to follow the story uh, as well. But the legislature has quietly drafted a tax on small business that may, if there is another special session, in quotes, uh, impact whether or not businesses in the state of Oregon are going to be able to continue uh, to function. Rod Dreyer um, has drawn attention to an upcoming lecture by Cal State Fullerton Professor Justin Huft, and it was titled Religiosity and Critical Whiteness, How Christianity Serves White Supremacy. Now, this is particularly offensive as an African-American who follows Jesus, who was a Jew from uh, the Middle East. Um, but this uh, this lecture description states a wide range of interdisciplinary research has identified how Christianity buttresses patriarchal power structures and beliefs. We will discuss how Christianity reaffirms white supremacy views, including how a colorblind approach maintains the optics of being non-racist while upholding racist systems of power. Now, this so-called colorblind approach uh, is a reference to scripture that says that we are one in Christ and the distinctions that he himself designed and that we are to celebrate uh, should not uh, separate us in terms of our, our faith. Uh, note carefully the things of which Bible-believing Christians are accused. Patriarchy, recognizing that God's word assigns certain leadership roles, uh, and colorblindness, judging people not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. And though not mentioned specifically in the lecture description, we're all aware of being non-LGBT affirming, will also get you labeled as an oppressor, no matter how kind, compassionate, gentle, generous, patient, and loving you might be. Now, some of us have been told if you were more loving like Jesus, the world would accept you. But the fact is, that's not the case. He was perfect and they crucified him. Well, Mike Moses points out that uh, we will be told to check our Christian privilege. That's what they're calling it now uh, in the very near future. And we're going to continue to follow this trend in the days ahead. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. I mentioned earlier this week that uh, China is rewriting the Bible to align it with communism. Um, and it's rather interesting to see uh, to what extent they have gone to try to um, rewrite the stories to 
uh, elevate the communist uh, worldview over the biblical worldview that Christians in China, and there are many of them, have embraced. Well, many Christians would undoubtedly recognize uh, the scripture in John uh, in which uh, the woman who is caught in an adultery is uh, brought before the Lord Jesus by those who are looking to entrap him and condemn her. We know what Jesus did in response. They all peeled away and the woman caught in adultery was told to go and sin no more. But China's state-run Jingzhou News Agency said late last year uh, that the Politburo Standing Committee member Wang Yang had presided over a meeting of so-called scholars and religious people from the grassroots level to discuss making accurate and authoritative interpretations of classical doctrines of the scripture to keep pace with the times. And, you know, keeping pace with the times is what the scriptures are all about, at least there. Um, the full version of the Beijing Bible has yet to be released, but uh, the passage from the Gospel of John that we referenced earlier this week uh, as part of the textbook for Chinese high school students um, has been released. Well, according to the Roman Catholic News Agency, UCA, the textbook will be used to teach those students professional ethics and law. And the passage from John uh, is a moral example explaining that obedience to the law uh, at all costs is an absolute necessity. Now, in this version, this Chinese version of the Bible, uh, as the uh, accusers all uh, step away, Jesus himself stones the woman and condemns her himself. Well, totalitarian government demands nothing less. And while many Americans should be rightly infuriated by this wholesale change of the Christian beliefs and values and the works of Jesus, they ought to be just as enraged by a progressive controlled American education system that force feeds um, our students an equally contemptible um, I'm not even going to use the word that others have used here, uh, perversion of American values and history in the form of Common Core, critical race theory, the 1619 Project, and the LGBTQ agenda. Well, just like the Chinese uh, Communist Party, progressives are dedicated to teaching children what to think and not how to think. Jen Lian, who's a professor at Duke University Divinity School, illuminated the big picture, noting that the Chinese fear Christianity for three reasons. First, the religion is international and thus links people to bonds of solidarity and affection that transcend national controls. Second, it's a congregational, uh, it, uh, giving it the ability to mobilize a stable, reliable community capable of toppling dictatorship. And they know what happened in um, other parts of the world. Uh, third, Christianity's transcendent vision and transcendent values present the Communist Party with an, um, a moral and ideological rivalry, rivalry rather, in comparison to the Chinese uh, Marxist-Leninist foundation that many Chinese view as a uh, spent force. Well, Christianity is thriving. According to the book, A Star in the, the East, The Rise of Christianity in China, which is co-authored by Rodney Stark, who is a sociologist, and Jinghua Huang, the number of... Uh, Christians in China is increasing by 7% per year. Thus, between 1980 and 2007, the number of Chinese Christians increased from 10 million to 61 million. If that trend continues, there will be 295 million Christians in China by 2030. Again, while that reality is anathema to the communist uh, government, uh, Americans shouldn't be too smug. Albert Moeller, who's the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, noted recently there is a strong parallel between China's efforts to create a new version of Christianity and those pioneered uh, by Protestant liberalism in Europe and America. Tyler Neal, a columnist, explained they aren't alone. Last Sunday in his latest encyclopedia uh, letter, 
uh, Fratelli Tutti, who's um, Pope Francis asserted that the pandemic proved the magic theories of market capitalism have failed and should be replaced by a new type of politics, promoting dialogue and solidarity. Pope Francis has also revealed that he views the nation state as an impediment to that agenda, adding the limits and borders of individual states cannot stand in the way of this, end quote. Well, in short, the Pope embraces the globalist agenda couched in Christian terms. In doing so, he willfully ignores the reality that it wasn't the capitalists who unleashed a global pandemic and lied about it, exponentially increasing its devastation. It was the same Chinese communists intent on making a mockery of the Bible itself in pursuit of unassailable power. Well, tragically, the Pope's current stance should surprise no one. In 2018, the Vatican's foreign minister stated that Cynicization and inculturation, sorry, those are challenging words, defined as aligning Christianity with the Chinese communist worldview are the key to Christianity's future in China. In other words, communist sensibilities should trump Christian doctrine. How will that work, especially when you look at the numbers of new converts in the People's Republic of China? Well, perhaps the Pope and other equal, uh, equally feckless Christian leaders should examine the realities of life as a Muslim minority in China, where the government officials have turned that nation's Uyghur Muslim population into de facto slave labor. Slave labor that produces goods for American multinational corporations whose CEOs worship the god of market share, which has reached a new high during the pandemic. Well, there's much more that um, could be said about all of this and uh, this project, but the most important point for Americans to grasp is that the Communist Chinese Party has learned from its mistakes, the mistakes of the Soviet Union, where religion is concerned, and warns uh, columnist Cameron Hilditch. Beijing co-opting, repackaging, and carefully controlling of Christianity within China's borders in stark contrast with the Soviets' outright implacable hostility to organized religion is a tactic well considered. In America, under the banner of incrementalism, secular progressives have embraced similar efforts to undermine Christianity, and just as in China, their biggest obstacle is people of faith who are routinely dismissed as bigots for rejecting this, that secularism is uh, in favor, rather, of religion. Yet something revealing and quite timely just occurred. After Trump contracted COVID-19, the outpouring of hate from far too many progressives and notable exceptions revealed a stunning callousness impossible to obscure. That it happened so closely to the election provides the electric with the electric rather with perhaps the starkest choice among many, regardless of their uh, of the nation's future. A constitutional republic can survive many things. Government endorsed soullessness is not one of them. Some things to consider in this strategic point in our nation's uh, history. And while I'm an American, I'm concerned about the outcome of the election. That is not my primary concern. My primary concern is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached, uh, that we retain the freedom to do so in this country. But in the absence of, of that freedom, my primary concern is preaching the gospel faithfully in obedience uh, to God rather than men. Much to consider, much to pray about, and I hope we're all committed to doing just that. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.